8. Wealth. After an early supper, consisting of bread, some very fat cold streaky bacon, and cheese, Mrs. Riddles put a sofa cushion, a pillow, two thin blankets, and a sheet on the cupboard floor, and advising me to leave the door open for the sake of air, retired to her own room. It was a vastly different kind of bed from that which had been given to me by Eliza at Mr. Baker's farmhouse, but at least it did not prevent me from sleeping the moment my head touched the pillow. I did not reopen my eyes until Mrs. Reynolds brought me a can of cold water and a basin, with soap and a towel. On Saturday morning, it is seven o'clock, she said, and breakfast is ready when you are. For Mrs. Reynolds' credit I must confess that I have seldom enjoyed a breakfast more. It consisted of dry bread, oatmeal porridge, and coffee. Oddly enough, the coffee was delicious, and the porridge was equally good, so that, thoroughly refreshed by a long night's sleep and an ample breakfast, I brushed my knickerbockers, cleaned my boots, and went forth into the main street of Polemton feeling fit for anything that might happen. Continued on page 74, The Generous Bakers A deputation of a guild of bakers once presented themselves before the chief magistrate asking for permission to raise the price of bread, which in those days was regulated by the corporation. When the time came for leaving, one of the deputies dexterously left upon the table a bag containing six hundred pounds in money. Some days afterwards they came again, fully believing that the purse had pleaded very powerfully for them. But the magistrate said to them, Gentlemen, I have weighed your reasons in the scales of justice, and have not found them of sufficient weight. It has not seemed just to me to make an entire town suffer by an advance so ill understood. Besides, I have had distributed between the two hospitals in the town the money which you left me, not doubting that you would wish it to be put to such a use. I also believe that, being rich enough to make similar alms, you cannot be losing in your trade as you say. W.E.R. Wood, Affectionate Eagles, A True Anecdote, A man working on a farm one day saw an eagle fluttering over the barnyard no doubt meaning sooner or later to swoop down in search of prey. He determined to save his chickens, and fetching a gun, fired at the would-be robber, but he only succeeded in hurting its wing. Instead of falling to the ground it flapped about in the air in a helpless sort of way, uttering loud cries of pain. The man was just going to fire again when he noticed another eagle coming up in the distance. It was evidently the mate of the one he had wounded, for it came straight to its rescue. Seeing that the first eagle could not fly away itself, the newcomer seized its wounded mate with its beak and claws, and, half carrying it, helped it to fly slowly away to the mountainside, where it put it down, as it thought, in a safe place. For a whole week the men on the farm sought it, day after day, carrying food to the disabled bird. It would have been quite easy for them to have killed both the eagles during this time, but the farmer forbade his men to molest them in any way because he was so pleased at the affection and courage the one had shown on behalf of the other. After a time the wounded eagle got well, and they both flew away. Steeple climbers, cleverness or skill in doing some particular thing has been noticed to recur in families, and steeple climbing is one example. We are told, at Nottingham there was a family named Wooden, members of which had for centuries the reputation of being daring steeple climbers, not for adventure, but in the way of business. Such persons were also called steeplejacks, and they were paid liberally for their exploits, as they deserved to be. Robert Wooden, who lived in the time of King George III, was famous for repairing steeples and spires without using a scaffold.
he did his work by the help of ladders, hooks, and ropes, when he repaired Street Peter's spire, Nottingham, in 1789, having finished his work, he beat a drum at its top, thousands of people looking on, another of the Woodens undertook the perilous task of ascending the spire of Street Mary's, Manchester, which was very lofty, by a tremendous wind the ball and cross had been bent down, and looked dangerous, this steeple climber raised ladders one after the other, assisted by blocks and ropes, and secured each in succession to the stonework with clamps, when he got near the top of the spire the work became more difficult, and the spectators anxiously watched him as he fixed the last ladder, having accomplished this feat, Wooden stepped from the ladder onto the crown or pinnacle of the steeple, and stood quite upright, with his hands free, then he raised a cheer, which was responded to by the crowds below, more extraordinary still, one of these steeple climbers is said to have performed the feat of standing upon his head on a steeple's top, but there is some doubt about the story, J.R.S.C., the boy tramp, continued from page 71, chapter IX, it was agreeable to think that I had nothing to do, and with my hands in my pockets I turned to the right, strolling towards the railway station, a few yards from which was a level crossing, the station yard and booking office stood on the left, and before the entrance were one or two old-fashioned looking cabs, one in particular I noticed, having a body like a small stagecoach and yellow wheels, as I hung about the doorway it was alarming to realize that in spite of my today's journeying, and of all the accompanying dangers, I might take a ticket and reach Castlemore in little over half an hour, and that consequently anyone else could travel from Castlemore to Polampton in the same short time, but it was easy to persuade myself that nobody would feel the least desire to travel a yard on my account, although I denied myself the pleasure of going on to the platform, leaving the station yard, I turned towards Mrs. Riddle's cottage again, and passing this came to a standstill in front of a few shops on the opposite side of the way, one was a butcher's, next to the butcher's was a grocer's, and in its window I saw a card, active lad wanted, I read, and as I stood gazing at the card, a short, red-haired man came to the door, rubbing his hands and looking smilingly about him, do you want a berth? he asked, after he had eyed me once or twice, I don't know, I answered, a stranger here, yes, I said, uh, well, he answered, even if you wanted a job, I could not take you without a character, but Mr. Riggs, at the home farm down the road, would take anyone this morning, he has got his large field of hay down, and it will probably rain before Monday, if he does not get it carried tonight, as likely as not half will be spoiled, with that he re-entered his shop, while I strolled on at first aimlessly down the street, I began to wonder how far it was to the home farm, a day's haymaking seemed to be a kind of play, and if one could be paid for such amusement, so much the better, for now that I had paid Mrs. Riddles I had only five shillings, and when once I started again they would not go very far, I had sufficient forethought to return to the cottage and ask for some luncheon to put in my pocket, then, armed with a slice of bread and a chunk of the fat bacon from which I had supped the previous night, I set out for the farm, there was a large field adjoining the road, with an open gate, at the farther end, two carts were being loaded, but nearer the road, several men and women were busily making the rows of hay into cocks, close at hand stood a tall, sparely built farmer with a cane in his hand and a fox terrier by his side, he seemed to be trying to hurry everybody along, 
and there was an air of bustle and haste about the whole scene, although the sun shone hotly, threatening clouds were coming up, and it would require a hard day's work to get all the hay carried by nightfall, here, youngster, he cried, as soon as he saw me, do you want a job, yes, please, I answered, fire away then, you will find a fork against the hedge, go and join those men, and he pointed to the haymakers with his cane, taking the fork, I ran across the field and set to work with a will, but the sun shone fiercely, and when twelve o'clock came I would gladly have lain down in the shade of the hedge, the moment we had finished dinner the farmer urged us to work again, and so we kept at it through the afternoon, until the last load was carried at seven o'clock and we all drew round the farmer for our money, he gave me a shilling for my day's work, and I confess I walked back rather proudly to Mrs. Randall's cottage, feeling that I had made a beginning and earned my first shilling. There was no difficulty about sleeping that night. The bells were ringing for service while I dressed the next morning. Having made my appearance as decent as possible, I walked across some fields to a small church. On the way home to dinner I noticed a stream which looked extremely tempting. Mrs. Randall's head spread a clean but much darned tablecloth, and the roast pork was ready. During the meal, the rain, which had been threatening since yesterday, began to fall, but when it ceased at half-past three I borrowed a towel, and ran across the damp fields to the river and soon plunged in, the swim was delightful, and having partly dressed again, I sat on the bank and washed my socks, which I carried home in my hands, on the whole it was a good day, although the wet which set in again towards the evening made me anxious about tomorrow, if the rain continued, all my plans would be upset. I had determined to sleep out of doors for the next night or two, thus seeking out my money, but I could not very well sleep without shelter unless it were fine and dry, and fortunately, Monday proved to be a drizzling morning, so that instead of setting forth as I had intended before eight, I hung about the door of the cottage, hoping the weather might improve, towards ten o'clock, the rain began to cease, and looking inside the back room I said goodbye to Mrs. Randall's who inquired in which direction I was going, to London, I answered, and this was the first sign of curiosity she had betrayed concerning either myself or my destination, she was a very old woman and somewhat deaf, treating my presence entirely as a matter of course, however, I bade her goodbye, and was on the point of stepping from the shop into the small front garden, when instinctively I sprang back and shut the door, to my horror I had seen Mr. Turton and Augustus walking along the middle of the road, each carrying an umbrella, Mr. Turton had an anxious expression on his pale, bearded face, as I crouched, peeping between the bottles of sweets in the window, I saw them pass the gate and come to a standstill, they had the manner of persons on the lookout for someone, and it seemed impossible to doubt that the someone was myself, I confess that I felt surprised, why should Mr. Turton want me back at Castlemore? Unless, indeed, for the sake of taking revenge for my flight, at least, I could conceive no other reason, and while feeling deeply thankful for my narrow escape, I determined to spare no effort to make this effectual, that Mr. Turton should have hit upon my precise locality did not appear very remarkable, these thoughts passed through my mind in far less time than it takes to set them down on paper, I remembered that my friend on the bicycle had said that all roads led to London and now the idea occurred that the best way to evade Mr. Turton and yet to attain my purpose, would be to make a dash across to some other main road, keeping almost parallel with my pursuers, after appearing to hesitate in the middle of the road, 
only a few yards from my hiding place. Augustus and his father approached the door of the opposite butcher's shop, presumably with the intention of inquiring whether a boy of my description had been seen in the place. I regretted now my short conversation with the grocer, who had nodded to me in a friendly way as I came home from church on Sunday, and no doubt had seen me enter Mrs. Riddle's cottage. If he directed Mr. Turton thither, I was lost, unless I could succeed in leaving Polampton before the Turtons came out again. Now, close to the station yard was a lane, which led I knew not whither, but at least it could be reached without passing the opposite shops. Opening the door, as Mr. Turton left the butchers and entered the grocers, while his back and his sons were towards me, I made a dash through the garden, turned to my right, nor looked behind until I had reached the other side of the street. Then to my alarm I saw Mrs. Riddle standing at her door, which I had just left, while Mr. Turton and Augustus were hurrying across the roadway towards her. Fortunately they seemed too excited to look about them, so that I guessed that the grocer had set them on my track. Taking to my heels I sped down the lane, soon leaving the few cottages behind and finding myself between low hedges with wheat growing on one hand and sheep turnips on the other. A short distance ahead, I saw a butcher's cart on the point of leaving a cottage door. Are you going straight on? I cried to the boy, only a little older than myself, who was driving. What if I am? He demanded. You might give me a lift. That's all. Oh yes. I dare say. He answered. I will give you sixpence, I said, up you jump, he exclaimed, and the next instant I was seated by his side, clinging to an iron railing on the top of the cart, how far are you going, I inquired, only to hinge him about two miles, he answered, I have got to fetch a calf, two miles would be better than no start at all, for I felt certain that Mr. Turton would follow me, Mrs. Reynolds had seen the direction I had taken and he might hire one of the railway station cabs to overtake me. Fortunately, the butcher's boy drove at a smart pace faster, I thought, than any cab, but when we reached Hincham and I paid his sixpence and alighted, I scarcely knew what to do. My experience on leaving the road for the fields on the first day had not been encouraging, so without much notion of where I was going, I determined to push along the lane for some distance, keeping a frequent lookout in the rear turning at intervals to look back along the straight, level lane. I walked on for a few miles, while the rain continued to hold off and the sun came out again, stopping once more to make certain there was no pursuit. I saw to my dismay a vehicle rapidly approaching, recognizing it as the queer-looking fly I had noticed on Saturday in the railway station yard. I felt no doubt that it contained Mr. Turton and Augustus. The driver turned and stooped down towards the offside window as if to speak to them, while the next instant, a head being thrust out, he pointed in my direction with his whip, now what was I to do, it seemed that although they might be able to see that I was a boy, the distance was too great to enable Mr. Turton to recognize me, with any certainty, as his runaway pupil, fortunately, the lane began to wind to the right a few yards ahead, and taking to my heels, I was soon out of sight of the occupants of the cab, a few yards further still, the lane bent again, and more sharply, so, seizing the opportunity, I climbed over a gate on the left into a large meadow, which contained a great many sheep and cattle, continued on page 85, insect ways and means, I I I, how butterflies, flies, and snails feed, when we come to examine the methods by which the more lowly creatures take up their food, 
we cannot but feel astonished at the marvelous number of contrivances by which this is done. To bring home this fact, let us compare the methods of feeding of two of our commonest insects with those adopted by another and very different group of animals the mollusca, taking the common snail as an example. By the butterflies and moths the food is taken in a liquid form honey procured from flowers by means of a most marvelously complex tongue or proboscis. This organ, when not in use, is coiled up so as to be out of harm's way, but when the creature desires to feed it can be extended with wonderful rapidity. Its length is astonishing, in many cases, as in some of the hot moths, it attains a length of four to five times that of the body, and in some species it may be as long as ten inches. The general shape of this tongue you will see in the figure marked A which shows what the tongue is like when seen under the microscope, carefully examined by the aid of a microscope. This tongue will be found to be made up of two separate tubes lying side by side, and, as each tube is grooved along its inner side, it follows that when the two separate halves are brought together, a third tube lying between the two outer ones is formed. So closely do these two halves fit when closed that this middle tube is perfectly airtight. This union is secured by a number of hairy projections which interlock, much as one's clasped fingers interlock. Only the middle tube is used for the passage of the honey the side tubes being used, as some think, for breathing purposes, while others hold that they serve to help in pumping up the fluids into the mouth. By this interlocking contrivance the tube can easily be opened and cleaned, should the passage become blocked by solid particles. Delicate as this wonderful tongue appears to be, it is in some cases capable of inflicting wounds on the tissues of the food plants, a species of moth, for instance causes considerable damage to crops of oranges by inserting its trunk through the peel so as to suck the juices of the enclosed pulp. The sucking action is performed by means of a small bag inside the head, the size of which can be alternately increased and decreased by the action of muscles, thus causing a pumping action. It will probably surprise many readers of Chatterbox to learn that this wonderful tongue is by no means always found in butterflies, for there are many species which have no mouth and take no food whatever after they emerge from the chrysalis stage. They simply live long enough to lay their eggs, and then die. The tongue of the fly is every bit as wonderful as that of the butterfly. Strictly speaking, perhaps it ought not to be called either a tongue or a proboscis, for it is really a spout-like mouth bent upon itself, and furnished at its end with a curious pair of flaps or lobes. You may get an idea of what it is like if you imagine the spout of a teapot to turn downwards at first instead of upwards, and then picture the spout turned sharply forwards near its middle. The body of the teapot corresponds to the fly's head, the end of the spout would correspond to the mouth of the fly. On each side of this mouth there will be found in the fly a pair of ear-shaped flaps or lobes, and these play a very important part. Each flap or lobe see figure B where it joins the mouth, contains a long tube and this tube gives off, along its outer side, about 30 smaller tubes, which are open below. Now, when the tongue, as it is called, is extended, as in feeding, a copious flow of saliva is sent down the long tubular mouth into the tube of each flap, and when this is full the liquid escapes into the smaller tubes, and as these are open below, it flows out, of course, onto the food. Let us imagine this to be sugar, the saliva meets the sugar, and the syrup which is of course formed is then drawn up along the same channel as that by which the saliva came down. New surfaces for the saliva to work upon are constantly exposed by means of some 50 or 60 exceedingly tiny teeth, which, by the aid of the microscope, 
will be found at the opening of the mouth, just where the tube-bearing flaps join it. The two rod-shaped, hairy organs at the base of the tongue, in the illustration, are organs of touch, and not part of the tongue proper. Concluded at page 109, The Elephant and the Crocodile, a fable. An elephant and a crocodile were once standing beside a river. They were disputing as to which was the better animal. Look at my strength, said the elephant. I can tear up a tree, roots and all, with my trunk. Ah, but quantity is not quality, and your skin is not nearly so tough as mine, replied the crocodile. For neither spear, arrow, nor sword can pierce it. Just as they were coming to blows, a lion happened to pass. Heyday! Sirs, said his majesty, going up to them, let me know the cause of your quarrel, will you kindly tell us which is the better animal, cried both at once, certainly, said the lion, do you see that soldier's steel helmet on yonder wall, pointing at the same time across the river, yes, replied the beasts, well, then, continued the lion, go and fetch it, and bring it to me, and I shall be able then to decide between you, upon hearing this, off they started, the crocodile, being used to the water, reached the opposite bank of the river first, and was not long in standing beside the wall, here he waited till the elephant came up, the latter, seeing at a glance how matters stood, extended his long trunk, and reached the helmet quite easily, they then made their way together back again across the river, the elephant, anxious to keep up with the crocodile in the water, forgot that he was carrying the helmet on his back, and a sudden lurch caused the prize to slip off and sink to the bottom, the crocodile noticed the accident, so down he dived, and brought it up in his capacious mouth, they then returned, and the crocodile laid the helmet at the lion's feet, his majesty took up the helmet, and addressing the elephant, said, you, on account of your size and trunk, were able to reach the prize on the wall but, having lost it, you were unable to recover it, and you, said the lion, turning to the crocodile, although unable to reach the helmet, were able to die for it and save it, you are both wise and clever in your respective ways, neither is better than the other, moral, everyone has his special use in the world, H. Berkeley score, McLeod of Ciliari, continued from page 68, there was much excitement in the Tonghai huts when the story was told, and Mong Yet's wife took possession of the Beibei in Gali, much talking and gesticulation, too. Among the mothers of the tribe over the white skin of the little stranger, frail and weak, he seemed at first inclined to slip away from his adventurous life, but Maso had a big motherly heart under her dark skin, and loved Bebe with a great love, and tended him with all the care she knew. Thus, in spite of strange food and surroundings, the little one throve, his dark eyes took in the brightness of sunshine and moon rays. he slept on his red sleeping mat under the shade of gorgeous blossoms waking to the sound of water and the scream of red and green parakeets, and his tiny hands were raised, with coups of excitement, to catch these bright-hued creatures flitting from branch to branch above him. There he heard the cries of the boys as they goaded the lazy oxen to pull the clumsy carts faster as they came laden from the steaming paddy fields. They learned to love even the pie dogs which congregated under the huts, and would let him touch them. He loved Massa the best, of course but almost as much his own white dog, who guarded Bebe jealously, and gave alarm if any evil threatened him. Bebe soon ordered to twist his tiny fingers in the dog's metal collar to keep him near. When the rice was all gathered, 
the paddy boats were laden and shipped down the river to the market at Rangoon. Then quieter days began, and Maso, dressed in her best on gala days, would stand at the hut door and chat to the neighbors in their curious musical language. How could the Bebe in Gali have got into the jungle? It was the woman who had died who had brought him there. Did she not call herself Mahklu, and had not long thought she was a Karen woman? Yes, that was so. But Bebe could not have been her child, had she not said he was in Gali. It must have been said for a mem or a bacon in Gali to lose him. But it was hard to understand, and there was the queer charm the woman had. But it and Bebe had brought good fortune never had Mom yet gathered in a better harvest. And the little subject of all this talk, dressed like a Burmese baby in Maso's arms, heard all, and understood nothing, not knowing how all-important it was to him. The rainy season was unusually severe that year, and came all too soon, then fever broke out in the jungle villages it came to Mong Yet's house, and Maso was one of the first to die. Bebe cried, and when no one knew, he crawled to her. They took him away when they found him there. He lay hot and restless on his sleeping mat, for he too had taken the fever. Mom yet was a sad man that day, and he and his fellows talked much of the trouble. They said the evil spirits must be angry, and some dread thing would happen if the white baby died. Had they not tied round its neck the metal charm, and it had worked no cure yet, then one told of a camp of white men, Bacon's captains and native soldiers, who had raised many tents and huts by the big lake, would it not be wise to take Bebe to them? Mom yet resolved to do so, they would start at moonrise, wrapped in cloth and skins tenderly by the women. Bebe was placed in the tapri Burmese basket of creole shape, and slung over Mom's shoulder. They paced rapidly through the night, he and his fellows, until at sunrise they saw the shining of lake only, and later the sentries and huts of a camp, and knew that their wandering was nearly ended. Aye aye, it was the first day of the summer term, at Oakwood Preparatory School and the headmaster, Dr. Rain, was interviewing in his study various parents bringing new boys, all of the latter more or less subdued by so august a presence, a ring had heralded a fresh arrival, and the butler announced Captain Ferrers, a middle-aged man, bronzed and tall, and followed by a dark, handsome boy some ten years old, entered, and was warmly greeted by Dr. Rain, who, grasping him by both hands, exclaimed, Welcome back to England. Fairers, it is good to see you again. I got your note, and am most interested this is your little charge. Of course glad to see you, my little man. Yes, this is Paul. I have been telling him a lot about my old days here, and how I was one of your first boys. I have to hurry away today, and would like a few words with you first. Paul could perhaps I will give him into my daughter's hands. New boys are her special function. Come with me and a kind arm was passed round the boy's shoulders. Shall I see you again? The child's big, dark eyes were turned wistfully to Captain Ferrers. Oh, yes, dear boy, and you can show your dog to Miss Rain, it is waiting outside. Now for our chat, said Dr. Rain, returning. I want to hear all you can tell me about this child. He is a fine boy truly, and a fine character, too. Proud and passionate, but affectionate and honorable to a degree. Among natives he has often helped me by his fearless truth and sense of right. It is more than nine years since he came to me. I was at the time newly arrived at Fort Cademan, one of the stations in the Shan Highlands on the China-Burmese frontier. As you know, my men are all Sikhs and Patans, 
and only I and my fellow officers were a British. One morning early, my man came to me saying that some natives wished to speak to me. I went directly. I found they were tongue hives, a friendly people a long way from my station. The spokesman carried a tapa native carrying basket over his back, and in it, wrapped in a blanket, a child apparently about a year old, dying, as far as I could see. It was brown with exposure, and its cheeks and eyes bright with fever. I took it for a native infant, but the man assured me by an interpreter that it was white. His story was rather involved. But I gathered that he had received the child from a dying woman in the jungle, eh, Karen, he called her. It was moons ago. And how the woman had got it he did not know she had said, Bebe, and, in Gully, and had died. Yes, she had said, Mahklu, which must have been her name. These Burmese women generally have the prefix, Mah, and so this was little clue. They call anything white, in Gully, English as a rule, so that also is no guide. I thought possibly the child might be half-caste, but feel sure now he is pure European, more suggestive of Spanish or Italian blood, I think. However, I am going from my story, I hesitated what to do, but the man was in such trouble, and so insistent, repeating over and over the necessity of propitiating the good spirit, that I called my wife, and she decided we must take the little waif, or it would die in the basket. For many days it seemed only just alive. My wife was doctor and nurse, however, and we managed to pull him through, and in a few months he was a beautiful walking and talking boy, the pet of the whole station, and while my wife lived, he was her bright, happy shadow, his black head, with a curious white lock possibly from some bad cut, was always cuddled close against her shoulder, and how she loved him, but she died some months ago, and I gave up my outpost work for a time, with a year's leave and have come to England until my next billet is fixed. We named the boy, Paul, after myself, and have given him the surname which was with difficulty made out on the brass collar of a dog which came with him the name of Fife, presumably that of its former master. I seem to gather from the man that the dog had been found with the child, but cannot be sure. It is a breed I do not know. Inquiries and advertisements were of no avail. No white child seemed to be inquired for and we had so little to go upon, as you see, and now he must be educated, and there is no one else in the world I can turn to so surely, or leave him with so thankfully, as you, Dr. Rain, Dr. Rain thanked him for his confidence, and they went back to see Paul again, Mary Rain, the doctor's bright-faced daughter, was making friends with little Paul, who sat on the floor, his arms round his dog's neck, the captain stooped, and lifting the boy, kissed him tenderly, goodbye, dear old man, you will be happy, I know, and get a clever boy, besides lots of football and cricket, I will take care of, Bo, and we will have no end of a good time in the holidays, as Captain Ferrer spoke he slipped a thin chain into the dog's collar, and led him away, pressed against the window a little lonely boy, with clenched hands, trying to keep back the tears that would come, watched those he loved best disappearing down the long drive, Continued on page 82. McLeod of Ciliari. Continued from page 79. Hello. New kid. What's your name? Paul Fife. Said the newcomer. Who had just peeked.